All right. Our guest this week is Coach McMillan from Richfield High School. Coach, thanks for coming on today. Hey, thanks for having me. Real pleasure. So first thing we do is your coaching Wikipedia page. So tell us where you've been, where, you, where you've played, and uh, everything that the audience should know about your coaching path. Um, you know, my basketball background was birthed in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I'm from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, so I know you're going to ask the question, of course, Packer fan. So, uh, you know, I was birthed there um, as far as my basketball skills. I uh, played at Milwaukee Washington High School, three years varsity, won a state championship there before coming to Minnesota. Um, and played at in Mankato at Bethany Lutheran College. At that time, Bethany Lutheran College was a two-year school. Uh, had a phenomenal career there. Had a great coach, uh, Coach Art Westfall. And then moved up to college at St. Scholastica, where I finished off my career, college, collegiate career. Played two years there under uh, Coach Jim Dacca. Uh, great coach as well, too. Played a little, uh, uh, a short stint of uh, semi-basketball in Chicago. A couple at the pro camps and stuff like that. And then I got into coaching. And, well, I shouldn't say that because I coached in, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I coached a lot of youth teams. But I got my first collegiate coaching uh, assistant job at uh, Minneapolis Community Technical College uh, down there with Jay Pivick, uh, Ron Gates. They were on the boys' side. And I was the assistant coach on the women's side for Traker McMillan, um, two state championships in the, nat the first national championship of school history was one down there. Uh, we just celebrated, I think, our 15th anniversary these past, that last year. So after that, I got a author coaching job at Richfield, came in as the sophomore coach. Uh, I was under Jim Dimmick, uh, excellent coach, excellent predecessor. Um, so I actually was an assist, assistant coach for about four years before I had the opportunity to take over the program. So I think this is uh, starting to get old, man. I think this is like year number 10 but, uh, at Richfield, but this is my 26th year of coaching. That's awesome. A cool journey from uh, Milwaukee, like you said, winning the state championship and then into the college ranks. Uh, we'll talk, obviously, we'll get into your program building, that sort of stuff. But what was something that you took from your uh, experience playing college basketball? Uh, the competitive nature. I mean, one of the big things I think um, a lot of kids or student athletes when they go to the collegiate areas, you have to enjoy the experience. Um, the biggest thing is that you grow. Um, from that freshman to that senior year. Um, and I think I grew a lot. I had two college coaches that uh, did an excellent job of not just only teaching us how to play basketball, but teaching us how to be uh, young men that can strive into society. Um, and I think a lot of times when you get to pick in a collegiate school or stuff like that, that's not one of the things that's on the list. You know, I think a lot of times we choose schools to see what our basketball career or our football career, whatever sports is, career is going to take us. But I think we oftentimes miss out on the fact that, uh, you know, you're going to be a mature adult. And I think that's why, you know, people like Michael Jordan always talks about Dean Smith and, you know, uh, Bill Walton and uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar always talking about John Wooden. So it's, you know, that, that's the experience that you want to have at that collegiate level. So you talk about, uh, I kind of hinted at the life lessons that come with coaching, which we all know, and that's a lot of the reason why we all get into it. We're all competitive, like you mentioned, but it's also we want to form those lifelong relationships with our student athletes. You guys had a unique opportunity like we did this past March. Uh, you guys qualified for the state tournament, and then 
uh, state tournament was canceled. So talk yeah. about how that go, how that worked with your kids. We talked with Chris Fadness last week from Austin, whose team didn't get a chance to play in their section final, which was canceled that Friday. But just what was the conversation you guys had in your locker room? Uh, and then what lessons did you, did you, did your team take from that? Um, well, once it was announced that it was canceled, we, uh, cause we, um, planning ahead, we had scheduled to have practice anyway. Um, cause I think we had the sexual championship the day before the night before. So we kind of got the guys together and, uh, you know, we re we went over the goals again, the goals that we had set out for this season and, uh, just went down the line of checking off the things that we said we were going to accomplish and the things that we were unable to accomplish. Um, the biggest thing, you know, I gave them the kind of the, uh, I want to say cliche type of saying that, you know, not too many teams can fin finish their season with a win. You know, we had that opportunity to finish that season with a win a lot with a lot of the other uh, sectional champions. Um, but my biggest sadness, and I think a lot of my players that uh, kind of felt the same way was our seniors. You know, you have those seniors who, uh, that you had in your program that dedicated four plus years to your program. Um, and this year we had a group of seniors that gave us everything they got year after year. So to see their season get cut short, uh, you know, outside of trying to get, I mean, trying to make a run at state was kind of probably the saddest part about it. But, uh, you know, so we spoke highly about that. Um, but at the same time too, we got a lot of kids that's returning so we're, we're expecting to try to do the same thing for the following year. So you're guaranteeing a section title next year? I'm <laughs> just kidding. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> trying to put you on the spot. Uh, you, you've done great stuff turning that program around. Everyone that I talked to, obviously we're a little bit, you know, I'm an Augsburg grad. So I used to have some friends that I went to college with that were from Richfield, but I'm a little bit removed from uh, knowing too much about the ins and outs of Richfield's basketball program. Everyone that I've talked to, though, on getting ideas for people to come on this podcast, everyone mentioned your name and how great of a job you've done at Richfield, turning that program around. So when you took over, what were some of your first big steps that you took or thing, the foundation that you wanted to lay for your program? Um, you know, one of the big things about me, I'm a, I'm a heavy research type of person, um, very observant. And, you know, I think the advantage that I had was I was already in the program as an assistant coach. And, you know, I uh, try to have a balance between what to listen to and what not to listen to. And I knew it was some things that needed to be improved. And I knew some things that was already great in the program. Uh, so I think those first couple years that, you know, I took over coaching, we had some pretty decent years. We were over 500, probably had like 16 or 17 win seasons before we had uh, what I call the uh, years of decline. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the, the biggest thing I think when you uh, are a head coach of a program, you have to be observant. You have to be uh, aware of your surrounding. You have to be aware of uh, the community aspect of it. Um, I call it uh, my quadrilateral success progress, a system of success. And what I mean by that is you have four points to a quadrilateral. And, you know, one being the coach. Uh, the other being the player, the other being uh, the community, and the other one being uh, the family. And the more that you can have one of them, those points cooperating and buying into a program, the more success your program will be. 
Um, so, you know, I mean, during those tough times, there were tough years where we weren't really successful. We didn't, I mean, we barely had two, two of those points uh, of that quadrilateral system of success going in place. Um, so these last couple of years, it, it has been kind of building a foundation and more points coming in there. And I think uh, these last couple of years, we have had our biggest community support that we have had since we went to state tournament uh, back in 06 and 05. So, I mean, that's one of the keys to building some of the best programs that you can have out there, the buy-in. I really like that uh, four points that you mentioned. Cause you, you know, we always hear coaches say you're as good as your players, which is true. But if you got a bunch of families who aren't very supportive, who have their own intrinsic motivations for their kids, or you have a community that's not behind you, uh, it's tough to have success. So I think that's a really cool way of laying out, uh, laying out your program. Sure. Um, yeah, it, it, it's, it was just phenomenal this year. I mean, it's, I think those four points were more close lit that they had been even like, even when we did have our state tournament runs way back 15 years ago. So uh, one of our Twitter questions was, what was the hardest part for you when you build your program? Um, you know, <laughs> you know, I was joking about this with a friend the uh, other day. I mean, again, it's back to the buy-in. Um, I can remember uh, four years ago, it might have been four years ago, um, we were at our end of the school year banquet, I mean, our end of the season banquet, and at the end of the banquet, I started talking about buy-in, okay? And I'll be honest with you, I don't really rehearse a lot of speeches that I do in public speaking. It just comes straight from the heart. So I had actually rehearsed this one. And I talked about buy-in, and I put myself in the audience. And I thought about this. If I'm a parent sitting out there and a coach is telling me to buy-in to the program and buy-in to the system and we just won two games the whole season, that ain't going to be easy to do, okay? So, you know, I had it pretty well. You know, my coaching staff and I, uh, about three or four years ago, laid out this plan, and we talked about what, what it was going to be like this year. So my speech around that at the banquet had to do with our plan that we laid out. And, I, you know, we talked about everything that we were going to do behind the buy-in so that parents and players could actually see uh, what we were putting into the program um, and what we wanted them to put into the program. And I guess, luckily enough, everybody started buying in. And we still took some lumps uh, for those first couple years that, you know, the program, I mean, the, the plan got put into session. But at the same time, I have, to be flat out honest, in 26 years of coaching, I have not coached a team at the caliber of buy-in that I had this year. I mean, we're talking about uh, parent support up the wazoo. You're talking about uh, the biggest attendance in two years straight of summer workouts. You're talking about the biggest participation in fall ball, the biggest participation in summer leads. Um, we probably had 80% of our kids playing AAU basketball. And we're talking about from freshmen all the way up to the senior. So the buy-in is huge. I mean, so at the same time, when you ask people to commit themselves to a certain thing, you have to be totally committed uh, to what you're doing as well, too. And I just that's what I wanted my players, my families, uh, and my community to see that 
uh, if I'm going to ask you for something, you better understand that I'm going to be at the front front line of what I'm trying to represent and what I'm trying to bring to the community and to the program. So let's go deeper into that. Talk about some of the specific things or specific actions that you've taken as head coach and then things that you've asked of your student athletes uh, as part of your program. Um, you know, so prior to, uh, you know, this, this, this four-year plan that I'm talking about, you know, every, every program has kind of a theme, uh, so to speak. Um, I think our theme was togetherness. Uh, and what togetherness was about was uh, working together. And <laughs> the funny thing about that is the two years, the last two years of uh, that togetherness run, we wasn't together. So, I mean, it got to come to a point where you got to abandon uh, a way of thinking of a program and what you kind of centering yourself around. And we changed our theme to, and I think you see, you might see this on a lot of my hashtag is we over me and putting the team and the community and the coaches and the players uh, before our personal game. And we mapped out what that looked like. So uh, simple as this, you know, when you're in the summer workouts and the off season workouts and you decided, man, I want to sleep in today when I know I have workouts at 10, you kind of putting yourself before the program. And we mapped that out all the way from the classroom, all the way to what it means in the court. We mapped that out to all what it means in the community. And one of the biggest things that I did was empower my players and my coaches. Um, we wrote down the, what does we, we over me mean to you? What does it mean? And we wrote that down and we uh, passed it out to all our players, all the comments that were, that came from the coaches and the players and, this is how your teammates feel. This is what your teammates are willing to do for one another. Uh, and what I think made it easier is that captains held people accountable. You know, they held each other. Wait, listen, on this page right here in our little handbook, you said that you were willing to, and they held everybody up to that. So they got a handbook. The, the families got a handbook. The coaching staff got a handbook about the We Over Me and we were able to uh, build off of that. So the biggest thing is if you want something to happen in any program that you do, any business that you do, any success that you have in the classroom, you got to empower the people that you're working with. Because um, it's easy for me to show up to practice and say, we're going to do X, Y, and Z. But if your players are not feeling like doing X, Y, and Z, then it's going to be wasted practice time. So it has to be some type of goal in place. It has some type of plan in place and it has to be some type of steps in place in order for you to uh, achieve and uh, succeed at any format that you're working with. Big thing that I heard from you and I think is so true is that you know the best led teams are the player led teams and you have like you mentioned your captains uh, if you have your seniors or your returning players whoever those leaders are in your locker room if, th if they're holding guys accountable that's when the, that's when really special things can happen within your team or your organization. Absolutely. So another point of your uh, quadrilateral that you mentioned were your coaches, and you mentioned just a bit there before, uh, how do you empower your coaches to have a voice and then also to add value to the program? Uh, one of my biggest things is your program is going to be as good as your coaching staff. Um, you have to have a buy-in effort. Uh, not only are these uh, coaches, my, my colleagues, my coaches, they're my friends, uh, people that I can trust. And, you know, when we make it clear, when we develop this coaching staff, um, 
are you here for the kids? That's the first question that we ask for the interview. Um, and every last one of them that they're here for not only the kids, but for the community. So I was fortunate this year to, uh, <laughs> it's funny, I had seven coaches um, and four of which, you know, the varsity, uh, your JV, your, your sophomore and your freshman. And then I was able to move one of my coaches that was my JV coach to be varsity assistant. And then I have two volunteer coaches, uh, two lovely ladies, two female coaches that bring so much to the program. And each one of my coaches has a responsibility um, that they are given the task during the off season to professionally develop. Okay, so I have a, a offensive coach, I have a defensive coach, um, and I have a, a player development coach, I have a player relationship coach, um, and they're, they need to bring to the table every, every summer, they need to uh, bring to the table, what are they doing to improve their responsibility? Uh, and I think I have, uh, and I know you'll probably say different in your opinion, I think I have the most analytical, data-driven coaching staff uh, in the state of Minnesota. I mean, these, these guys uh, and girls can uh, break down the slightest thing. We walk into practice and coach, we should move to the shooting drill over here because we're only shooting X amount of percent from this in the game. Or, you know what, when we play defense, we're going to lock down in this area because this team only shoots 27% from over here. So they're the most analytical group that I have in the most uh, film watching of us than I have ever been on the staff so they can break down every player's game that we have coached because uh, they spend so much time caring about uh, development of each and every player that we have in our program. Not trying to steal any of the uh, Richfield secrets, but what are some big stats that your coaches are looking for? Uh, well, we start with us first, you know, okay. uh, we start with us and uh, talk about, what we're doing well, what we're not doing well, and what we can improve on. Because um, that's the biggest thing I think a lot of coaches, and I take this advice from my other coaches too, they spend so much time on their opponents. And if you don't have the personnel or the skills or the talents uh, that that other team have, you're just kind of wasting your practice time. You want to develop the skills of your, your, your program first and the players in your programs first so that they can be able to play in any type of condition, um, any speed, and set their own tone. So if you're a team that's not really fast, well, you need to master the game of slowing that game down. Uh, and if you're a team that gets up and down the floor, well, you can't let the other teams slow that game down. So you have to uh, master your craft uh, first before um, you spend so much time on the other team. So what we do is uh, details of uh, shooting releases and uh, footwork around the basket and uh, where we spend most of our time running our plays off of and who's some key players that we have to focus on in that game. And I'm talking about from our team. So then after we have that established, then we move to the other team. And uh, this is the crazy part. Um, uh, just giving you a little bit of secret is when we talk about how detailed my coaching staff is, you know, I had one coach for when we were doing our sectional, uh, sectional run, 
he would come to practice dressed as the other head coach. Uh, and he, <laughs> he had, uh, honestly, he had dressed as the other coach and he had spent hours watching the other team during the game when we played them prior or on film studying the mannerism of the other head coach. Uh, I mean, it was crazy that I asked him, I said, why do you keep taking that water bottle out of your pocket like that? He said, oh, yeah, that coach, every time they get ready to call a timeout, they take their water bottle out their pocket, take a quick drink, put the top back on, and they call a timeout. So if you ever watch some of our sectional games for that certain opponent and watch him, you would see my whole bench look down at that bench and wait for him to take that water bottle up and – uh, my team would prematurely jump up because they knew a timeout was being called. So this is the seventh interview, interview that I've done for this podcast. That is by far the coolest thing that I've heard so far. So like <laughs> kudos to your staff. A, a big thing too that I, every, you know, everyone who's you know, making big runs in the state tournament, you know, a couple of years, you know, here, there, you got good assistant coaches. And I think you hit on that. And my coaches do a lot of good stuff. Your coach do a lot of good stuff. You know, Hopkins, their, their assistant coach is doing a lot of stuff. I think that's the key, right? A really good head coach is great, but if you don't have coaches who are either coaching your younger levels or as a varsity assistant who don't have the same uh, care for the kids like you mentioned or aren't driven to have the program be successful, your, your program is not going to have sustained success. So I think that's just a, a huge takeaway. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. In, in our, when we went back and forth before this interview, you mentioned one thing that you do well is uh, – get your coaches and players to develop through uncomfortable situations. So can you elaborate on how you, you know, maybe change the environment of your practice or change the environment of through film or something where you're uh, forcing your players and coaches to develop in an uncomfortable nature? Well, let me start by saying that I am uh, not bashful about calling on other coaches. Uh, matter of fact, after this podcast, you'll probably get a couple calls from me picking your brain about different things that you might do or think about as well too. So, um, that all, that philosophy all came about when one day I was reading a newspaper article that, uh, Calipari was featured in and he had some good points in there. So out of the blue, I said, you know what, I'm going to call John Calipari and see if he's available. And surprisingly enough, um, the next day, John called me in the middle of my math class. So math was cut short for that day. <laughs> so, um, um, so he let me pick his brain a little bit and he sent me some notes and he talked about how his job is to prepare his team for any situation. Um, so a lot of times in practice, we try to uh, emulate scenarios and different things like that and um, do a lot of five on seven. As a matter of fact, we, a lot this year we played nine on five. Uh, to work on our defense and stuff like that. So um, blasting the music in the gym when it's a one-on-one -on -one, uh, game on the line situations, but also, too, uh, talking about things that's off the court. Um, Richfield is what I call a uh, big suburban urban city, um, a small urban city, um, in a self-suburban city, which, uh, you know, we have a high free and reduced lunch uh, percentage. And not all my kids have a luxury of, uh, at times, uh, 
having their own car or being the drive to work or got to take the bus or walk through conditions or don't have the necessary supplies that they need to have. So we talk about that. We talk about how do we adjust? Because um, one of the biggest things, and you know, I want to be known for, uh, it's not necessarily coach of the year each year or how many games I won and stuff like that. What I want to be known for is how prepared I had uh, my guys to go out into the real world and be young men. So we do a lot of team building and talking about what it means to be in certain situations. Uh, how do we adapt when there's not a lot of food in the house? What's the other uh, circumstances or situations or how do we balance that? Um, because another thing is too, and I don't know how much you experience this, but uh, when, when they come to practice, we can't just start practice. We got to check in. Because some of them had some tough days. Some of them, uh, it might be a, a hard AP class test, or some of them might have lost a family member, something like that, and we can't just go into basketball. So um, we talk about all those situations because um, when we try to cover those relationships and build relationships that way, I think it makes basketball a lot easier because then they know that you care. Then, then they know that you care about their circumstances and things like that. So when, I, when we talk about those uncomfortable uh, situations, it's not just on the court, um, you know, and, um, you know, cause I got one player that, and I, and I say it to them all, but there's one player that I know he has go through a tough life. And, you know, before every game, you know, I would pull him close and say, I'm proud of you, proud of you making it through the day and being out here. And I think at the end of the season, he called me and he said, you know what, that probably was the, the most inspirational and impactful thing that I heard each day when you told me that I was that and that you were proud of me because I don't hear that a lot. So those are the, the tough situations that we try to have our players prepared for. Um, and again, you know, the, the, the running joke on my staff is that I don't call enough timeouts. Well, when you put your team in certain situations, uh, they're, they're more comfortable having those certain situations without you always having to call a timeout and say, hey, come on, let's get back on track. You know, they gather themselves because we already done worked on it in practice. We already done worked on it uh, in our team building session. So, uh, you know, those are the type of situations that we kind of go through. Really about. powerful. That's really powerful stuff when you can make that connection where the kids, where the, your, your players know that you see them as more than just a kid who's trying to get them a win or get your team a win. You see them as a human who you want, that you're invested in, that you want to be successful. And that's just, that's really powerful stuff. Uh, and I, it kind of goes into the next thing. You've been kind of, you mentioned some awards, but you will, you know, class 3A coach of the year, like breakdown hedges, close uh, class 3A coach of the year. So first off, congrats on that stuff. But also, and I would say more importantly, you're as of right now, a top 10 finalist from Minnesota teacher of the year. And so just a really good year. And obviously just listen, to you talk, you clearly have a great relationship with your student athletes. I'm sure it's the exact same way in the classroom. So what are some ways that you're able to be so successful, both as a coach and also as a educator? Because most of the people listening to this are both teachers and um, coaches, right? And so we have a day job as much as coaching is maybe the more popular job in the community at times and you're winning games and you're winning sections, you know, your day job is teaching. So how do you balance both and how are you so successful at both? Well, I think you said it already. The biggest thing is the balance part of it. 
you have to be kind of balanced and real about um, the things that you're doing. I am very fortunate because I have a, a, a fantastic family um, that kind of supports the things. And um, one thing I would suggest that is you got to be open to the people that you love about what your expectations and your, uh, your goals are. Uh, and my wife, who is a, uh, she's sitting over there, she's probably gonna get bashful as I say this. She's a three sport hall of famer at uh, Richfield. So she understands what it means to be a student athlete. All four of our daughters were athletes. Um, so they kind of understand that part of it. But I take the same philosophy into the classroom as I do uh, with basketball. Um, the first thing I do is about building relationships, uh, getting to know your students and uh, being equitable towards them and being willing to put your, uh, be, take the sacrifice of getting them whatever they need to be successful. Um, and when you start talking about a teacher to year finalists, I think that's what all these, uh, all 10 of us have in common. We're willing to do the extras. And that's not to say that other teachers don't do that, but I think that's what kind of uh, opens people's eyes to what type of teacher you are. So once you build those relationships with your students and kind of see what they need and take the extra time to adjust yourself to their needs and uh, their family needs, then uh, again, just like the point I made about basketball, it makes it a little bit easier to teach them on a regular day because they know you're there for them. Um, so when you have a, uh, what I would say a, a balance and expectations and accomplishments that you want to achieve with the areas that you feel passionate about, it makes it a little bit easier. Uh, you can't just jump up and teach every morning. You know, if, 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 if you have that pattern uh, and you're doing successful with that, I need to give you a call and kind of figure out how you're doing that. Cause I haven't been able to do that. You can't just jump up in the morning and show up and teach and teach and coach. Um, my wife would tell you, uh, I keep a notebook right by my, our bed because I'm constantly jumping up with new teaching ideas and coaching ideas that I write into it because it's constantly on your mind. When you're dealing with the youth or you're dealing with somebody on a regular basis, they're constantly on your mind. Uh, and I think some of the, the, the true, truly uh, good coaches and great coaches, when a school year is over, or when a season is over, it doesn't stop for you. You're constantly thinking how you could have made them bet even more better than they were before. Uh, how could I have, uh, could I have spent more time with that student with one-on-one -on -one reading? Uh, you check in on them throughout the summer. Um, and that's why I'm able to have uh, so many lifelong uh, relationships with a lot of my students. Um, I'm starting to get old now because now they're inviting me to uh, their baby's uh, baptism and, you know, I'm getting invited to weddings and uh, asked to speak at some of their college graduations and stuff like that. So um, they don't, they don't ask you that if you haven't made an impact in their life. And one of my goals in coaching is to bring them back. Okay. I, I sell that to my coaching staff all the time, bring them back. We're going to see, if we're fortunate enough, we're going to see hundreds to thousand players in our career. And if we can bring 70 to 80% of them back to help the program be involved or come to the games and stuff like that, then that's success. 
Okay, that's success because not every team is going to uh, win a state championship. Not every team is going to win a sectional championship. Not every teacher is going to win teacher of the year. So uh, the biggest reward is being able to see your students flourish, grow up to be something, and then they come back. So, uh, you know, that's one of the biggest things that I try to thrive on and balance things out uh, and kind of work with my family to help me be able to balance things out. Powerful stuff. I mean, you, uh, <laughs> you're motivating me to reflect on ways just through our distance learning that we have going on right now, ways that I can continue to be better at connecting and, and working with our kids. So that's great, man. And uh, best of luck, hopefully, as I know you mentioned that in June, that list gets whittled down from the top 10. Uh, and I hope, and hopefully you get, continue getting more recognition because the work that you're doing is just um, obvious and, and it's really cool to have you as a colleague in the coaching world, knowing that you're doing powerful stuff in the classroom. Uh, I want to switch gears here for the last 10, 15 minutes or so and get a little bit into more of the X's and O's and get into what you're okay. doing in practice and stuff. Uh, you mentioned, uh, real quick with practice, you mentioned uh, making your kids uncomfortable doing five-on-nine defensive drills, stuff like that. Uh, just give us a quick overview of what a Richfield practice looks like. Uh, I think the biggest thing is the planning part of it. Um, I think most coaches, and I hope so, uh, they know what they're coming into year after year and what type of team they're going to have. So they try to center their practices and their philosophies around that. Um, our biggest thing about our practice, our goal every practice is we're practicing for the sectionals. So we want whatever we shape or whatever form we want to be uh, by the time we get to the sectionals uh, is what we're practicing on a day-to-day basis. So if we want to be a run-and-gun team, well, our practices are everything is timed. we got clocks running. Uh, we, tra- we work on transitioning uh, from one drill to another uh, if we're planning on being a fast-breaking team. So we don't spend a lot of time. So one of the things I, I talk to my coaches about, okay, so if you're going to teach some certain type of defense today, well, you better have it pretty well timed because we're not spending 45 minutes on a practice because you know we lose the attention of our players. So we work on the transition part of it. We work on uh, game situations in the sense that how do we call timeouts? Where do you sit? You know, how do you come out of the games and a lot of that. So our practice is very fast paced. But if we want to break it down into the defensive philosophies and the offensive philosophies, I think one of the things that we do defensively is number one, you know your personnel. Not every team can do every type of defense. Uh, not every team is going to be a trapping team. Not every team is going to be a pressing team. Uh, so um, if we are in that, we have our players play both sides of it. So if we're going to be a pressing team, uh, we spend a lot of time uh, breaking down the offensive side. What would you do to break our press? And uh, so our guys kind of very detailed about that. And so then that's where we kind of figure out where we're going to trap you at, uh, where we're going to run you up the sideline and where we're going to try to get the ball out of certain spots. Um, again, nine on five is bananas. So we got, uh, we do this drill called uh, hockey defense. And so um I'm in charge, my, my defensive coach and myself are in charge of subbing kids in. So, and then we have our offensive coach, he's got maybe the starting five or the starting eight. 
And what I randomly do is I throw players in a certain situation. So um, I might have a player at half court standing there. We'll play like we're having a conversation and I'll just push them into the game and then trapping our offensive guys have to adjust. Um, so, um, you know, they come in at different, I mean, we, I sing a single across the court to another coach and he pushes another player in uh, based on whoever we're playing and we know that they like to do certain stuff. We'll send a player in at that certain spot. Um, we'll flip it and we do nine on five where five people got to guard nine. And uh, we send players into certain spots where we know that the team likes to shoot a lot of shots at and unexpectedly always got to be aware. So that's our biggest thing, always having to be aware of what's going on and uh, being able to see it from both the offense and the defensive side. That's cool. I was writing notes down here. That's, uh, I like that hockey defense and like the five on nine stuff. So you guys are more of a uh, pressure-based team this past season? Uh, I guess I can say that to a certain extent. Um, you know, we, we were uh, able to turn a lot of games around with our pressure. But again, uh, we're different. I mean, uh, I got a, like I, I have a coach that's a defensive nut. So to be honest, in our playbook, um, I'll be honest, I think it was kind of hard for a lot of teams to scout kind of what we were doing because we, just, I mean, we made we made zone defense look like man and man defense look like zones and, you know, trapping from this area, we were very unorthodox. A lot of the no-nos that coaches would say, well, don't trap in the middle, don't do this, do that. Well, we, we did it <laughs> anyway. So, uh, yeah, we were, we were that team. I don't know if we'll be that team next year, but I mean, again, you have to adjust your defense and your offense to your, personnels you know I always had a hard time with coaches that say we're, we're going to be a flex offensive team well, you can only do that in college because you get to pick the players <laughs> I mean you don't uh you know unless you have been uh flexing swinging with them since they were sixth or seventh grade and that's been in your feeder program which a lot of programs don't have feeder programs then that's great but you never know like this is the like the first year we didn't had truly somebody over six four we had five guys over six four. We didn't have that before, so I mean, so we have to adjust to what we have. So, what are some of your rules you have with your trapping? Uh, don't foul. <laughs> 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 that's the biggest one, uh, okay. and, and that's hard to teach. That's hard to teach in the beginning because, again, pressing is fast. You know, I mean, sometimes it's fast, so you have to teach players how to be more controlled. Um, and that's one of the biggest rules is not not fouling because if you foul and then that means we got to go deeper in our bench and that means we can't press. So um, you just have to teach kids how to be more disciplined with it. Um, and then it's easy to say don't foul, but you have to. We spend time in practice, in practice talking about what does a foul look like, okay? What does foul be like? We didn't have four officials come to our practice um, and speak to our guys about the different fouls and the way that they call fouls. And we have four officials come in and watch us play defense and literally be critical. That would be a foul. That would be a foul. And so um, understanding that uh, principle of it and being in shape, that's the second rule. we got to be in shape. Um, and then the third thing is be disciplined when you do it. 
offensive end, what you, what's your offensive philosophy? Obviously, like you mentioned, and, and it's so true, uh, you got to adjust to who you have. Uh, you can't be a, a press, five out, you know, sh- shoot a bunch of threes team if you got guys you can't shoot and you guys can't get up and down the court fast, right? You're going to get torched if you're pressing with a bunch of slow guys. But generally speaking, what are some of your guys' uh, offensive philosophies? If you open, shoot it. <laughs> no, but uh, I think the biggest thing is that that's one thing you can adjust to a certain extent year after year or be consistent about. If you have a pretty good defensive playing team, then that'll create more offense. Um, and that's one of the things, too, that my coaching staff is very analytical about is the number of possessions that we have each game um, and trying to understand the amount of possessions that another team has as well. Uh, the more possession you have, the better chances you have to score. Okay, uh, But also, too, um, I think every coach in America is trying to teach their kids good shot, bad shot. You know, And I think that's getting harder and harder year after year because there's so many things that they're watching and emulating. Uh, I'll be honest, I love watching James Harden, but not all those shots are good shots. So then you try to convince them that that's not a good shot. But what I saw Kyrie do it, uh, Kyrie is getting paid millions and millions of dollars to take those bad shots. So, and most of them go in. So on the offensive side of it, we're teaching the fundamentals. Uh, We're teaching uh, good shot, bad shot. We're teaching how to get the ball up the floor, uh, how to make the best pass, uh, where we're scoring, the most at, because um, I think you, the biggest thing is as coaches, we got to teach kids how to play the game. Uh, and what I mean by that is, you know, so it's no confusion when I say to a player, that wasn't a good shot. Now, he might say, well, coach, it was a good shot two shots ago. Yeah, but we haven't scored in the last three possessions. So if you coming down, taking a Steph Curry three, that you hit four of them in the previous game, well, that's not a good shot. That didn't give us a chance to get a second opportunity to. Um, the basis to anybody's good offense is got to have some good shooters. So we spend a lot of time working on our shots. You got to have them good ball handlers. So we spend a lot of time making sure that our point guard all the way down to our five men can handle and bring up the ball. So, uh, and then we work on playing fast. I mean, it's, we work on playing, doing a lot of drills fast, so we might have a drill where you have to uh, transition and make five layups in 20 seconds, getting up and down the court. So we set a time limit. So of course, the first couple of weeks of practice are disastrous because nobody's making no uh, five layups in 20 seconds. So just learn how to play at a fast pace, but at the same time, a two tempo speed. I think we should. I w- it would have been fun to have played you at the state tournament because we we like to get the ball up the court and run too. So that would have been there been, been a lot of points in that game. But on the flip side, I would have felt really bad for your assistant coach who would have had to have tried to emulate me. They could have dyed their hair orange and could have been pacing up and down, and that would have been a tough job. And you might have had a resignation on your desk if that was the case. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. You're keeping track of possessions. What uh, do you have a set number of points per possession that you guys want to get to offensively and hold teams to defensively, or do you not go that far with it? Uh, we, we go in depth with it, but it, it, like, again, it depends on the team, depends on the situation. We do have a set goal. We do have a coach that's on the bench that's tracking possessions and what we do on every possession that we have it. Um, and then at the, so we got the live 
uh, tracking of, okay, we ran this offense, did we score? Uh, who assisted in different things like that. So this person's responsibility at halftime, they, I mean, that's the first person that talks to me, comes up and say, listen, you know, we got X amount of possessions at halftime. So then that's what I'm mainly talking to the team about, that, you know, whether we're controlling the game or not controlling the game. And sometimes we may walk into the halftime and be up 15 points. And I'm saying we're not controlling the game. And they're looking at me like, well, we're up 15 points. Well, we're playing at their tempo. We're just doing a better job of shooting this game than controlling the game. So value and possessions is a big thing that you want to talk to your players about, how important it is to try to get a shot every time you have the possession versus turning the ball over. Um, and then it's a plus if we're trying to get a second shot. So um, with everybody in the state, most of us having huddle, but it kind of breaks down those different things and those point per possessions and stuff like that. And that's another thing that we have, uh, we spend time with our players, teaching them what each one of the, the stats mean on huddle versus uh, points per game that most of them might be looking at. So we, we teach that. And then I think huddle gives you, a, uh, also gives you an option where you can set goals uh, per game on different statistics that you're in. So, you know, we kind of uh, have the, after each game, each player receives a printout of the goals from each game and whether or not uh, we achieved that goal and how did it affect us that we didn't achieve that goal and how did it affect us that we did achieve that goal. So, you know, that's one thing about my coaches that we maximize every resource that we have. We're not going to be playing all these books for huddle and nobody's using it. So, All right, last question, and we'll merge in one, uh, another audience question from Twitter into this last one. So what kind of advice would you give to a first-year head coach, and then um, how do you find longevity in coaching? Um, the biggest thing I would say to a, a first-year head coach is, uh, first, make sure that you have been under somebody, and not necessarily as assistant, because sometimes – People get hired that haven't had the assistant experience, but you need to have some elder uh, over you that uh, you may be picking their brain or maybe getting advice from. Um, because uh, I don't know if you probably remember your first year like I remember my first year. Sometimes you're just basically given the keys and then you're told, build a great program. Um, and I think a lot of times some of the new coaches that's coming in see that part of it. And we know that it's more than coaching just X's and O's. Uh, you're managing emotions, you're managing skills, you're managing parents, you're managing players. Uh, you're trying to keep the principal and the AD so it, happy. So uh, the biggest advice that I would give them is uh, get some help. Um, talk to somebody that's been in the game or talk to somebody that's knowledgeable about the game uh, before you start your season. And the second thing I would tell them is uh, come up with a plan. Uh, come up with a plan on how you want your program to look at the end of year one, how you want your program to look at the end of three years. Um, because if you don't come in here with no plan, regardless of if you got the players, the personnel and stuff like that, or even basketball, because I have known some programs that not even have enough basketballs. Your plan should be something that you're willing to stick to, but also be willing to adjust. 
The third thing is hire a good coaching staff. Hire some people that are uh, passionate about being working with kids, that are passionate about the game, and to be honest, have the time, because you know that coaching is very time-consuming. Um, so those three elements right there are something that I would tell every first-year coach, um, because, you again, it, it goes by you so fast that you might not even – at the time, next thing you know, you're in your fifth year and you're looking back like, man, where am I from where I was at the beginning other than some wins and losses? Uh, the longevity piece of it, I think it's patience. And again, if you're coming in with that plan and if you stick to your plan, because again, uh, I'll be honest with you, I was asked multiple times, because why are you sticking it out? Why are you sticking it out? Y'all didn't have some tough seasons. Why are you sticking it out? And, you know, the biggest thing is that we over me, it wasn't ever really about me. You know, I didn't won uh, three state championships. I didn't want a national championship. So I know what their experience is, what it to win. So I want to give them and share with them that experience. So you got to be patient and uh, work through some things and be willing to fix things. And you also got to be willing to say, maybe I need to do a better job. I mean, a lot of coaches don't, take that time to do that because you know we got we wear so much pride on our shoulders and so much pride on our chest but you know what I mean some of those losing years I could have did better you know but some of those losing years I coached my butt off and I had to work with what I had to work with so being patient is uh, keeping your eye on the prize and uh, caring more about your your players and their futures more than uh you know, your wins and losses to help you do that. Yeah, I think if we get stuck looking at the, the wins and loss column, uh, it, it turns into a long profession because there's only a handful of programs that every single year are making to the state tournament. And exactly. you got to find six, you got to find success in other things. So I think that's really good advice uh, for a first year head coach. I definitely know that I wish I would have had that seven years ago when I took over. Uh, coach, I want to thank you for joining us. I've been thank super you. impressed with uh, your team and uh, the success that you guys have. And I uh, only hope for the best for the for Richfield moving forward. Absolutely. Hey, Brett, that's, uh, that's plan on meeting next year, March. All right. Sounds the, good. I'll, I'll put it on my calendar. <laughs> All right. For sure. All right. Thank you. Hey, thank you.